channel open. Welcome back to Weekly Trek, a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. I am your host, Alex Perry. What's today's date? The date. Today's show was recorded on October 9th, 2020, and is current through Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1, so beware of spoilers. Though, given we have one Lower Decks story this week, and the show is only available in North America right now, I will be noting, as I have in weeks past, in the episode description, the time codes for any Lower Decks discussion, so you can skip over it if you choose. Alright, let's get into the show. Good day, Voyager, and welcome to A Briefing with Neelix. Catchy title, isn't it? Weekly Trek is a 30-minute news show covering the biggest stories from the Star Trek franchise. We are in a new golden age of Star Trek. There are six television shows in production, possibly more on the way, and enough merchandise to fill the Bajoran wormhole. So stick with me and I'll help you sort the real facts from a lot of the Dominion propaganda that you'll find online. But I can't do this alone. And my guest this week is the co-host of The Seventh Rule, a Star Trek podcast. It's Ryan T. Husk. Ryan, welcome to Weekly Trek. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, Ryan, I ask my guests this question every week. I want to know something that's got you feeling good about Star Trek at the moment. What's got you moving at Warp 10? Well, you know, I'm glad you said spoilers ahead because uh, what I'm feeling excited about is the Lower Decks finale and Lower Decks as a whole. Wasn't it fabulous? I would say yes. I can't really think of any kind of negativity or nitpicking. And I'm usually quite a nitpicker because I'm a big Star Trek nerd. So I like to nitpick things. And I'm actually pretty pleased with that final episode and the series as a whole. I'm, you know, as silly as it sounds, I'm actually proud of them for what they've accomplished. Yeah, in 10 episodes with only, you know, 24, 25 minutes an episode, they really did manage to get to the point where by the season finale, you know, they gave you an episode that sort of culminated the previous nine episodes and gave you, you know, right. not just more laughs, but also, you know, some feels too with the death of Shax and with the appearance of the Titan and Captain Riker and Troy. I mean, it, it was a huge episode. Right, and one thing that we've discussed previously on, on on the seventh rule is that with, as you mentioned, such a short running time, really we have the total running time of about five or six regular Star Trek episodes. And so to think that they've crammed an entire season's worth of show into five or six episodes worth of running time with about 40 seasons worth of Star Trek references is nothing short of astounding, honestly. Yeah, yeah. there have been a lot of references and there were still <laughs> yet more in the season finale, that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, when they first announced Lower Decks, I was on the fence about it. I didn't know how I was going to feel about, you know, an animated Star Trek comedy. And I am all in by the end of it. I mean, I have seen, you know, people say that it is their favorite of the new Star Trek shows. I'm not sure I'm quite ready to go that far, but it really is in strong contention for being, you know, the highest quality Star Trek show that's been on the air in quite some time. I'd be curious to know what is your favorite of the three? Well, I can't decide. That's the problem. I, I, <laughs> I There are things that I like very much about all three of them. I might say Lower Decks is my favorite, but I also am aware of recency bias being an issue, you know, in that it just finished and I'm sure, feeling really sure. good about it. So I'm, I, you know, it, it'll settle down over time. I think in terms of 
you know, ranking a lot of the newer stuff. It takes some time for it to sort of settle down in your mind for you to figure out, you know, where it fits in comparison to everything else. But, you know, I think I, I've also seen people say this and I will 100% agree with them that in terms of first seasons of Star Trek, Lower Decks right. has got to be in the top one, two or three of all the shows. Right. That's another thing we've mentioned before is that Ciroc, my co-host Ciroc Lofton says it's in the top one. <laughs> but he hasn't seen all of Star Trek or even close to it. So take that with a grain of salt. They had a very clear mission and they achieved it really better than any, you know, all the other Star Trek series, they have their bumps, they have their bruises and Lower Decks did as well. I think that they just reached the ceiling that they were trying to hit much more quickly and much more efficiently. Now, if we want to talk about the bumps and bruises they had, they did have some. I thought that the first two or three episodes were certainly weaker than the the following seven or eight. I thought that when it first hit, you know, that first episode, that second episode, I was actually a little bit disappointed because unlike you, I had very high hopes for this because Mike McMahon is a, is a quality writer and a quality showrunner. He's a huge Star Trek fan. An animated series allows you the freedom to create any monster of the week that you want, any starship that you want, any planet that you want. So I thought really this is something you can have a lot of confidence in that it's going to be very good. The first episode or two I thought were a little rocky, as is the case a lot of times uh, looking at you encounter at far point <laughs> or really all of them so i try not to hold that against them but it was hard not to in those first episodes or two because it was so different that it's hard not to think uh-oh is this series not going to be as good as i yeah. hoped but it seemed like every week we we're saying i think that was the best episode so far all the way until the 10th episode and that's really i mean obviously ideally you want your best episode to be your first so that you don't lose your audience but it's usually the worst <laughs> or close to it, you know. I also want to uh, give a big shout out to CBS and CBS All Access. A few weeks ago, the PR department gave me the option to give the addresses and shirt sizes of the, the biggest fans of Lower Decks. Since I run the biggest fan group for Lower Decks on Facebook, as well as the biggest fan group for Discovery and for Strange New Worlds and for Picard. So we kind of talk sometimes and they gave that option for the for the biggest fans and i thought that was such a classy move they sent out these big boxes to these unsuspecting fans just to show them that not only do they appreciate the fans but they want the fans to know that they appreciate them because sometimes you know we forget as companies or as content creators to not just say hey we appreciate the fans but to also actually do something that makes the fans go, oh, shoot, wow, they really actually do appreciate me. That was such a, a nice, classy thing to do. And I think that should be a lesson to all of us to not assume that they all know we appreciate them just because we say it, but to continually prove it so there is no doubt and so that they do feel special and they do feel appreciated. And I thought CBS did that very well. And I just want to give a shout out to them. Not that they need my shout out, but I think it's important that, uh, you know, in this world of battling PRs and, and lawsuits and good shows and bad shows, I think it's good to recognize the good deeds that people do. Hear, 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 hear. All right. Well, with that, let's turn to the week's top stories. There's a war going on, and I'm a reporter. This captain 
was asked to embody an inhuman level of perfection in order to be accepted as good enough to the doubters, but showed them all what it means to be truly outstanding. We can think of no better captain to inspire the next generation of dreamers than this one. Permission to come aboard? Ladies and gentlemen, the star of Star Trek Prodigy, Kate Mulgrew, as Captain Catherine Janeway. Welcome home, Kate. <laughs> Virtual greetings and... Well done you, Alex Kurtzman and the Hegeman brothers, for having the foresight to understand that Star Trek will captivate the imaginations of young people. And when Alex Kurtzman called me over a year ago now, I think, to propose this idea, I have to tell you that I was at first a little bit uncertain. After all, I had played her for seven years in four and a half inch heels. I had invested every scintilla of my being in that woman. And I thought, an animated version of Janeway? I don't know. I don't know. But even as I was talking to Kurtzman on the phone, long dormant longings to restore her started to stir. And I thought, this will be heavenly. I can go into a recording booth, which I love to do. I can now endow her with nuances that I didn't do before because I will have the privacy and freedom of a recording booth. And we can take it to uh, unlimited places. And then I thought, you know, I was the first female captain, and now I'm going to be the first children's captain. And what on earth could be better than that? So then Dan and Kevin Hageman, who are geniuses, you should know, you just saw them, I can assure you they are bona fide geniuses, <laughs> uh, sent me the animatics and the scripts, and I was dazzled. So I, uh, I jumped in, and I thought to myself, this is going to be an extraordinary adventure. How thrilling to be able to introduce to these young minds an idea that has elevated the world for decades. And to be at the helm again in that way is, uh, I think, going to be deeply gratifying in a brand new way for me. So I'm ready to go, guys. This is going to be a wonderful adventure. And I'm so glad you're on board with me. And I hope you're equally excited. Are you? Oh my God, are you kidding me? We're, <laughs> we're sitting here with like just joy, joy radiating out of us. We're so yeah. excited. We're I so excited, Kate. I was about to say I'm over the moon, but I'm like, that's not far enough. <laughs> I'm much further. I'm over galaxies. I, I think it is true about uh, the children. Uh, and by children, I'm saying we're talking about a demographic five to 15 and their parents and their grandparents. I mean, it's going to be a living room full of generations watching this. But I think those little sponges, those little minds are going to go. We love this. And to be able to do that again, anew, is absolutely delightful. So I'm not only excited, I'm completely committed. I've already started recording and enjoyed it enormously. I got the next four scripts, which are increasingly better. You guys are really marvelous. And Alex, thank you for having the foresight to understand that uh, children will absorb this as it has never been absorbed before. Wow. CBS has shocked the Star Trek fan community with the biggest news since the revelation at STLV 2018 that Sir Patrick Stewart would be returning to Star Trek by announcing that Kate Mulgrew, who played Captain Catherine Janeway on Star Trek Voyagers, if you need me to tell you, would be reprising her role as Janeway in the upcoming Nickelodeon animated Star Trek show, Star Trek Prodigy. The announcement is the first major revelation about Prodigy since its name and title treatment were revealed in July at the virtual San 
San Diego Comic-Con. Janeway's role in the series implies, though does not confirm, that Prodigy will be set during the 24th century, but we can't rule out that she could be some kind of hologram which would allow the show to be set at any time later than the 24th century. But I think this sort of rules out the idea that it would be a 23rd century show or earlier. But regardless of how Janeway appears, Mulgrew's return to the franchise is a sincerely welcome one. And I can't think of a better character to serve as a role model and mentor for the new generation of children who will be exposed to Star Trek because of Prodigy than Catherine Janeway. This is really a very exciting, special moment for fans of the franchise, both new and old. Ryan, how are you feeling about the return of Kate Mulgrew to play Catherine Janeway? I think it's a very smart move. I don't feel terribly emotionally invested in it because I'm not their target audience. I'm not a child and I'm not a parent. (laughs) But I do think, objectively speaking, and also as a Star Trek fan, I think it's a great move. I think it's smart. I think it's a very good fit for a lot of reasons. Number one, look, I'm going to be honest, even though I'm not a parent or a kid, I'm going to watch this show. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go ahead and admit that I'm still going to watch it and I'm probably going to love it. But it's smart, especially that they are creating animated series so that these legacy characters and these legacy actors can jump in and they don't have to be self-conscious if they put on a few pounds or if it's three decades later or whatever it is, or maybe they can play a younger version of themselves. You know, they can play 25 year old uh, Lieutenant Janeway if they want. You can really do anything in the animated world. And so I think it's important that they take advantage of that. And they obviously are. And as you mentioned, Captain Janeway was a huge role model for a lot of people a lot of people. And it wouldn't be surprising if she becomes a role model for an entirely new generation of fans. And I I think that's really great. And then what are they going to do? They're going to move on to Voyager next, those children, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a very astute kind of, you know, way of building a gateway drug into the Star Trek franchise (laughs) for the younger generation. I mean, you know, in several ways, one for the point you just made, which is, you know, if you fall in love with Janeway, as a result of watching Star Trek Prodigy, you may then move on to Star Trek Voyager, which may make you then move on to the next generation and then Deep Space Nine and then et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden you've you've been hooked into the franchise as a whole, but also because given what a role model Janeway was for, you know, young women everywhere in the early 1990s, you know, Kate gets the opportunity to do that all over again. And to your point about the sort of, you know, freedom that animation gives them, you know, it did really sound like from the way that Kate was talking about you know, how she had thought about the idea of returning to the franchise was that I think she probably would not have done it if it were live action, that her having the ability to do it as an animated show was what really kind of sold her on the prospect of doing it. And and I wouldn't be surprised to your point if there were many other actors in the franchise who would never consider a return to live action, like some of the guys who had to put on really heavy makeup every day, you know, for seven years, but who, if it's just, you know, them in a recording, booth, they might be much more willing to do it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That's exactly what we thought about Brent Spiner, by the way. We thought he would never come back as data because he said a thousand times he would never come back as data. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they worked it out. But other people really wouldn't. And now, I mean, who doesn't want to show up to work in sweatpants? I mean, that's great. Or nowadays, you don't even have to show up to work. You just, you know, hop out of bed and hit record on your computer for voiceover work. Now, one thing I would counsel, though, and this is just my initial 
thoughts is nowadays in animated shows, and as you saw in Lower Decks, they have a certain style of delivery, which is very, very, very fast. Quick lines, quick hits, almost talking over each other, no breath in between. They, in fact, they, they edit that half a second in between your sentences to compress them, almost how, how people, the YouTubers used to do five to eight years ago. Now, I would counsel to be careful about that because that's going to be their probably their first instinct to do that, especially with the children's animated show. But with Kate Mulgrew, it may not work because her delivery is such that it will lose a lot of gravitas. If you tell her a thousand times, say it faster, say it snappier. She's not fast. She's not snappy. She's calm. She's collected. She knows who she is and she knows how to emphasize words and she knows how to slow down on words and she knows how to hammer a point home. So I would be wary of over-directing her. I don't think she's a shrinking violet. I think she'll be strong enough to say, no, I don't want to do that or whatever. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think she needs, you know, she doesn't need any counsel, but they might, the directors might. And that's just one thing I would say to be careful about. Yeah, I think, you know, the only thing to my mind that sort of gives me hope that that's not the case is, you know, and obviously we know so little about what the sort of story or setting of the show will be, or even Janeway's role in it, other than, you know, the log line that we got for the show when it was first announced, the group of lawless teens who find a derelict starship and use it to search for meaning and adventure, right. et cetera, et cetera. But it certainly sounds like from the way that they talked about it at the announcement, you know, it's not like they decided, they sort of wrote this mentor figure character and then they were like, oh, we could get Kate Mulgrew as Janeway to do this and then sort of, you know, backfilled. It does sound like they originated partially the show itself around the idea of Janeway, you know, playing that role because there was that whole conversation between the Hageman brothers and Alex Kurtzman around. We pitched Kurtzman on this idea, but it was really sort of very dependent on Kate Mulgrew ultimately saying yes, which it's a good thing she did because otherwise they would, you know, have had to have gone back and reconceptualize what they were doing. So I hope that as a result, you know, this isn't some like thing they came to later, but something they went into very intentionally that they will understand the sort of power and gravitas that Kate Mulgrew being Kate Mulgrew will bring to the role and therefore not over-direct her, as you say. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned about it. I think it'll be just fine. I just think that that's something that they should have in the back of their minds going in from the very beginning, just so that they don't have to iron it out, you know, midway through. Well, in addition to the fabulous surprise announcement about Kate Mulgrew returning to Star Trek, we also learned more about both Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Lower Decks at the virtual New York Comic Con Star Trek Universe panel. Well, we'll take Discovery first. Sonequa Martin-Green introduced a clip from the upcoming season premiere. The clip, which is the opening scene of the first episode of the season, shows what happens immediately after Burnham emerges from her temporal rift into the 31st century. Now, normally, I would have stopped and played the, the audio of the clip as part of this episode, but I'm not going to do that in this case because it's very effects heavy and all you would hear is a <laughs> lot of music and a lot of heavy breathing, but it's fun and you should definitely check it out if you can't wait the few extra days until the episode drops on Thursday in North America or Friday in the rest of the world. In addition, the cast and crew teased a little about the upcoming season. Showrunner Michelle Paradise confirmed what I managed to sleuth out from Memory Alpha on a previous episode, which is that 
Crewman Daniels and the Temporal Cold War from Star Trek Enterprise take place earlier in the timeline than the events of Discovery Season 3, which means that, yes, we are definitively further beyond anything else we've seen in previous Star Trek shows. Alex Kurtzman also talked about the challenges involved with developing technology for the 31st century that is both believable as well as being a natural evolution of a lot of the tech seen in earlier Star Treks. Many of the rest of the cast and crew were very circumspect about what to expect from the upcoming season, so as not to give away spoilers, but the panel certainly whet my appetite for the long-awaited season 3 premiere, which will be by the time you listen to this episode later this week. Ryan, are you looking forward to Star Trek Discovery Season 3? In a word, yes. <laughs> what are some of the things you think you want to see from it? Well, again, I'm always just curious to see what's going to happen or how they're going to expand our world now. I know that uh, it seems as though the Federation is down to six planets or colonies. I'm very curious to know which ones those are. I don't know if that's exactly been covered, but I kind of, I'm kind of a history buff. I like the storytelling of centuries of history, and I, I want to go into the future of Star Trek and learn about that future's history. You know, like all of the things that led up to, you know, where they are now. They obviously won't cover all of it, but I'm sure there will be some unraveling. You know, Michael Burnham, for example, is going to say, where are all these planets? What happened? And the person that's talking to her is going to say, well here's what happened. And that kind of stuff is always fascinating. I think that's some of the stuff that writers enjoy doing the most because that's storytelling. You know, it's telling you the story of what happened over the last 900 years. I'm also looking forward to seeing some of my favorite characters again. People like Saru and the young upstart Linus. Tenet Nan is also a great one and Culber. Just kind of seeing what's going to happen with them and and how their stories are going to intertwine. One concern I do have, and I'm not overly concerned about it, but sometimes in sci-fi shows, and this is almost always, when a ship goes into the future, magically, somehow the ship can still defend itself against other ships from the future. Whereas we know that if a boat from the year 1250 comes in and tries to take on a, a Navy destroyer right now, it would not be able to defend itself very well. And so that's my nitpicking brain that jumps in is when I say, please don't make it so that somehow the Discovery can defend itself against really even the smallest ships flying around at that time. But I, I have faith in the writers. They know what they're doing. They have a lot of great science consultants on board. So I have a feeling that they'll ask them, they'll say, hey, is this feasible? Is that feasible? How do we escape by outmaneuvering or tricking them rather than outgunning them because we know they won't be able to outgun anybody. Yeah, I think that sort of plays into what Alex Kurtzman was talking about in regards to you do have this challenge of like Star Trek is already future technology and then you're building future technology on top of that and so it all needs to feel believably connected to the same world but it also needs to feel like the discovery should feel very anachronistic. It should feel like a fish out of water. You know, they've gone nine hundred years into the future. And at the same time, it should also feel like they've gone 900 years into the future, right? And we did see in the clip a little bit, you know, books on his ship, and he's got this sort of tactile interface where it's, you know, this sort of shimmering kind of metal thing that, you know, sort of pokes out bits and pieces. And it does all look, you know, significantly more futuristic than the L-Cars displays. And if, if that's the kind of approach where, you know, we are seeing something that does feel like it's believably X hundred years beyond what we 
no, I think it's going to be good. But it's, I feels like it, you know, it could run into trouble where if it just sort of feels like generic sci-fi space future show where it's sort of, you don't necessarily still feel like it's all that sort of Star Trekky. I think it, it does sound like that's, you know, something that they've really grappled with intentionally over the course of the season, which makes me feel hopeful about it. If they, if they sort of come into it and said, oh, not a problem, we figured it out, then I, I think I'd probably be a, a little more concerned about it. Right. And I think what's going to be most interesting is seeing them join, you know, the band of resistance misfits or something more so than flying into a war and saving the day. I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be that they're going to find themselves in the middle of an uprising or joining this band of renegades or, or something really interesting like that and learning these new characters, learning these the new situations and, and what that century entails, you know, kind of like when a Voyager went out into the Delta Quadrant, it was like, okay, what's this quadrant all about? What's going on here? What's the story? What's what's the situation? There's the Kazon, the Malon, the Borg, there's Talaxians, there's all kinds of things happening, right? And that's what's going to be most interesting, I think, going into the future is what's the situation now? What's the diplomacy? What What are the politics of it? You know, our current or what we viewed as the current thing was, you know, the Dominion and the Gamma Quadrant, and, you know, we also had like the Cardassians and the Breen and, and we all knew how they affected each other. And I'm interested in learning how these new elements affect each other, you know, in the future. Well, the Star Trek Lower Decks portion of the New York Comic Con virtual panel included an interview with the cast and Mike McMahon, which was moderated by Will Wheaton. In it, they discussed the first season of the show, the finale in particular, and teased what to expect from season two. The panel also featured a surprise guest appearance by Jonathan Frakes, appropriate given that Frakes reprised his role as the now animated Captain Will Riker alongside Marina Sirtis's Deanna Troy aboard the USS Titan in the Lower Decks finale, No Small Parts. And McMahon indicated that we aren't done with Captain Riker. The season finale ended with Boimler having taken a promotion to Lieutenant Junior Grade and an assignment aboard the Titan, which is where McMahon tells us we'll find him at the start of next season. So expect more from Captain Riker when season two premieres sometime next year. Well, Ryan, we talked a lot at the start of the episode, sort of looking back on season one of Lower Decks. But is there anything in particular you think you would like to see from season two? Well, I think I would like to see Shax saved by an exocomp or something like that, because I really like that character. Now, if we don't get that, I would like to see a, a really cool replacement character or two, maybe, a, you know, an interesting Saurian or whatever as the new security officer and or an extra character replacing Boimler. I do not expect Boimler to be on the Titan for more than one or two or three episodes. I think he is going to go back. I think he'll get demoted and go back to the Cerritos for whatever reason, you know, fill in the blank. But I don't think that they will have Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis for the entire season. I just don't think that's something that's going to happen because now you're just going to have to have the storylines of two ships. And that just is really tough to do throughout an entire season. You can do it for one or two or three episodes but eventually it has the, all the storylines have to come back together. So I do hope to see that and I expect to see that. I would like to see more of the Titan first though, very much so because I did read the first book or two of the Titan and I really enjoyed the characters. I thought it was very interesting, all the characters they came up with. 
We didn't see any of those characters that we knew from the books in those quick shots of the Titan. But I do hope that before Boimler goes back to the Cerritos, we do get to see Tuvok, for example, because Tuvok was on the Titan in the book series. And also there was a character, he was an unjoined Trill. I don't remember his name, but it would be nice to see him as well. Maybe a couple others. Yeah, it, it does strike. So I think, you know, we're at this really interesting sort of crux point with Lower Decks, which is we don't yet know the answer to the question of how much of a conventional adult animated comedy this is. Because conventional adult animated comedies are grounded in routine. Like, think of The Simpsons, right? They've been on the air for 30 years and none of the characters have ever aged. And, you know, they sort of do different things for an episode or two, but ultimately we always revert back to that kind of initial point at which we met these characters and because that's the sort of dynamic that's been created and that the show wants to play with. And now we've gotten to the end of Lower Deck season one and they have moved a bunch of pieces around the board, right? They killed a character. They moved a character to a completely different ship. I think what will be really interesting, as you say, is I agree with you. I think there's no way that Boimler stays on the Titan for the rest of the season. One way or another, he's going back to the Cerritos because as much as this show is a Star Trek show, it's a show about the crew of the USS Cerritos. It's not a Captain Riker in the USS Titan show. It's Star Trek Lower Decks. And so, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of the storyline in Star Trek Enterprise towards the end of season four, where Trip Tucker sort of asked for reassignment to the Columbia. It's right. like, you know, th that's going to happen for a few episodes, but you know that he's ultimately going to end up back on the Enterprise because Enterprise is the story of the Enterprise. And so I think the same thing will happen here. But I think you, you sort of pointed out that what the most interesting question will be, which is, do they decide to leave Shax dead or not? Or, you know, in the first or second episode of the second season, do they, you know, sort of engineer a way of him having survived that? And then by the end of, you know, episode two or beginning of episode three, we sort of return to more of that kind of season one dynamic between the characters. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I did listen to an interview with Mike McMahon where I think he was with Scott Kalura over on the Transporter M3 podcast. And he did not seem to like bite at the prospect that Shax could return. He was sort of like, well, he does seem to be pretty dead as a result of sort of where we <laughs> left him from. But, you know, that could also just be him playing coy and they do plan to return the character because I did really like that character. I mean, I'd like to see him return, but it would also be interesting to see, you know, what new character they come up with to replace him. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would say he's dead just because he's not a main character. So it's okay to lose that character objectively speaking. They're not going to lose the captain um, and they're not going to lose the four lower deckers. Probably the two that they could kill would have been Shax and Ta'ana, or as I call her, the crazy cat lady. <laughs> Those are the two that if they wanted to make a big splash by killing someone and shocking everyone, those were the two that they could potentially sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it they certainly can sort of move ahead without shacks and i think you know keep that sort of core dynamic of the show intact it's just it, you know it'll be it, it it will be interesting to see how much they are sort of balancing that you know kind of more live action star trek with that sort of the sort of conventional adult animated comedy into season 2 and then ideally into season 3 4 and 5 as well
Well, lastly, Virtual TrekCon is making a return this weekend to help meet your Star Trek convention needs in a COVID-safe way. And while I would normally be the one to introduce this story and tell you what to expect, today's guest also happens to be the organizer of Virtual TrekCon. So I'm just going to ask, Ryan, what can we expect from the second Virtual TrekCon? Virtual TrekCon will not kill Shax. Just to let you know that <laughs> we would never virtual Trek con. It's a five day virtual convention. It's extremely interactive in that every single video and every single event has full interaction either with the guests and with the other fans or just with the other fans. But every video, every event, every game, everything has that interaction. So it has the feel of a real convention because you can talk with people. You can hang out with people. You can use your inside jokes. You can ask questions. It's all free because we thought it was very important to do something free for the people right now that are dealing with a lot of stresses from various pick your poison directions. Everything seems to be bad news lately. But we also wanted to create something to where the vendors and the dealers that usually are in conventions and in the, the convention uh, dealers room, somewhere where they can start making some of that money back that they've lost over the last year from all the cancellations. So in our first virtual TrekCon, we had kind of a virtual vendors room video. So people watch it, they go to the websites, they do all this stuff. Well, this time we expanded on it. And now every day is going to have a 90 minute virtual vendors room where everybody's going to have tables, by the way, it has the perfect name. It's called the promenade. <laughs> Terrific. And so in this promenade, you click on their Zoom links and you go visit their table and they can sell you their wares or they can tell you about their website or they can talk to you about their fan club or whatever it is. It's just like if you are visiting their table at a convention and anybody that normally would have a table at a convention can do this. And it's totally free for everybody. And hopefully they'll make a few bucks. Uh, we've got a lot of really cool people joining in. Uh, Armin Shimmerman will be doing a table selling his book. People like Gaze in Space and Lambda Quadrant and the Improvised Generation. They're all doing tables, whether it's to sell something or to bring awareness to something. A special shout out to Dr. Mohammed Noor who is a science consultant for Star Trek, who's really been running this promenade and setting it up very well for us. He took something that would have been a lot of work for me and has turned it in, into a well-oiled machine. So big shout out and thanks to him. Now, as far as the programming is concerned, it's going to be maybe even a little bit more programming than the first one. The first one was six days and they were about 13 hour days. This one is going to be only five days, but the days are longer. They're maybe 14 to 15 hours and it's really jam-packed. Like there is not a half an hour of dead space in that 15 hour day. So you're gonna have to just cook your dinner and eat it in front of your computer really quickly because <laughs> there isn't a lunch space. But we're, we're pretty excited about it. It's going to be a good time. It's again, free for everybody. Hopefully the vendors will be able to make some of that money back that they've lost this year and we'll all be happy and it'll be a great time. And given that we do not have Destination Star Trek Germany, we do not have Destination Star Trek London and 
God willing, we won't have Star Trek Las Vegas, given everything going on. Having these kinds of options for fans still to congregate and get together and for, you know, vendors to make some of the income this year that they were expecting, you know, in January to have done is uh, is no small feat. So, you know, thank you, Ryan, for all of your hard work on that. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I think a lot of that just came from the fact that I do go to Star Trek Las Vegas every year. It's kind of the one thing I allow myself to do just for fun out of the year. The rest of the year, I'm just kind of working and getting things done. And you meet these vendors and they're all just Star Trek fans trying to make a few bucks. And and when these cancellations happen, it was kind of the first thing I thought about was not so much for us fans, but also for those poor vendors that it's like, they're not just doing it for fun. They're not just doing it because it's their favorite thing to do every year. They're actually doing it to try to live their lives, to actually, you know, make some money and have a livelihood. And, you know, and, and secondarily for the fans, because I know for me, it's my favorite thing of the year. And I'm really going to miss my friends this year. And I'm sure they all miss the Star Trek convention as well. So we definitely want to create something to fill that gap, to give them something to look forward to, give them something to smile about, give them a way to support each other and lift each other up and share positive messages and have fun and have laughs together and really just kind of lift up the Star Trek community for five days, kind of like what Star Trek Las Vegas does for me and for others. That's the hope. And the first one seemed to have done that, which is what encouraged us to do it a second time. All right. Well, we've talked about the facts and now let's speculate on what's going to happen in the future of Star Trek. You make some very good points, Captain, but it's still all speculation and theory. So each week, I and my guest give you a wish or theory we're nurturing about any of the shows or the future of the franchise. So Ryan, let's hear your theory or wish for this week. My wish for Discovery will be to give us a ton of information about all of the races that we became attached to. I want to know what happened to the Ferengi. I want to know what happened to the Cardassians. I want to know what happened to the Dominion. I don't want to just show up and we're fighting some big bad guy. That's cool, but I want to know what happened to these races and when, you know, that to me is interesting storytelling. Um, My prediction is that they will touch on it, but they won't necessarily cover it as much as I want because I think maybe not everybody wants that. I think that they will join a band of freedom fighters and they will restart and rebuild the Federation. That's my prediction. And I think it's a pretty safe prediction. Yeah, I think probably it is going to be not as much as you want, but maybe more than you would fear because it feels like the right way to do it is to, as they are unraveling this story, you know, it, it's sort of like in the the novelization to the, the sort of intro to Star Trek Picard, right? The Last Best Hope, that book that came out about, you know, the Romulan supernova. It was very careful to tell you lots about the things that you saw on the show, but then tell you absolutely nothing about what was happening on the edges, right? Unless it was directly relevant to the story they were telling, in which case they would go into all kinds of detail. They sort of left it to one side. My guess is for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, they're going to do something similar. As they pull in elements to join the story, they will kind of peel back the onion for those individual pieces of the story. But it's not like in Episode 1, 
one they're going to say like, oh, and, you know, the remnants of Ferenginar <laughs> after, you know, XYZ happened in, because in some ways that sort of then boxes them in for later on in the season or next season or the season after when they're like, oh, I, I wish we didn't kill off all the Ferengi because it'd be really good to have a Ferengi right now, you know, and then then they could have brought them in. So I, I think we'll sort of start and then, you know, in the same way that they will be, you know, in this galaxy and not know what's going on, we will sort of slowly over time start learning about what's happening and have that revealed to us over time. So I, I think it will probably be that we'll get, we'll get some of that, you know, like we know the Trill have a role this season. I think we'll get some trill stuff for example yeah that's a great point but like will we get ferengi stuff i don't know because we don't necessarily know there's that there's a ferengi in the season yet we do see a cardassian so maybe we're going to get some cardassian stuff you know i think there's there's a lot that we that i mean there's certainly a lot they could do i mean i want them to kind of you know release the encyclopedia of you know what's everything that's going on in in the galaxy because i am just like you i love that kind of information that's you know that's the star trek that i live for but i i think it will satisfy some of what we want, but probably not all of it. Right. I agree. I I want to know all of that information. I want to know everything that happened to everything. But I also realize that does not make for a good script. Nobody wants to read a script that is all exposition. And that's what that would be. And nobody wants to watch a show that is all exposition. So hopefully it will come out bit by bit when, for example, if Michael is talking with a Cardassian, And she just kind of says, so what did happen to the Cardassians or something like that? You know, a little fireside chat. And then in that episode, we learn what happened to the Cardassians, a little bit of it. And then later on in in later episodes, two other people are talking. And then the guy says, well, that's why we destroyed the Bajorans when we had the chance. And now we know the Bajorans are gone. (laughs) You know, I think that's how they're going to do it. I think that's exactly right. Well, my wish this week is uh, Lower Decks wish. It is amazing that the design for the USS Titan which was designed for pocketbooks in the early 2000s to be the USS Titan for their series of novels has now become canon in the final uh, episode of season one. We saw the USS Titan for the very first time in a televised version of Star Trek. And so that design is now canon. Eagle Moss had made a smaller version of the USS Titan for the Star Trek Starships collection. It had been produced as a result of a big petition from subscribers to say, look, if you make it, we'll buy it. You know, even though it's not a canon ship, we still really want it. And so they they made it. But now that it is a canon ship, I would like an XL version of the USS Titan, the really big ones, you know, the, the sort of 10 inch long starships that they've been making for various different hero ships of the franchise. So now that we've seen it, now that it's canon, it's a fabulous, fabulous design. And I want a big one sitting right on my desk. So that's my wish <laughs> (laughs) week. What do you think? I can never have enough Titan. So I'm pretty excited about about that. I am also glad it is now canon, although I kind of always just treated it as canon. Sure. Me too. Me too. Like the the, this books not being canon thing is kind of confusing to me. I feel like when I'm reading about Riker and Deanna and when it's officially licensed by Star Trek, I don't really see there being that much gray area between something that's licensed and something that's canon. So to me, that 
was always canon, just like the, the fabulous book written by Andy Robinson, A Stitch in Time, to me is also canon. Things like that. I'm glad that they legitimized it a bit more. And if I were to add a, a second wish, I would say I want to see more of the Titan, which I mentioned earlier. Totally. Just more Titan stuff. We want it. We love it. Do you have a theory or a wish for Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or the future of the franchise that you'd like to share? Tweet them to me at Weekly Trek, and I might feature your theory in a future episode. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of Weekly Trek. Thank you so much to my guest, Ryan Husk, for joining me today. Ryan, how can people contact you if they want to continue the conversation? You can look up uh, Virtual Trek Con. That's at Virtual Trek Con on Twitter or Facebook or Virtual Trek Con at gmail.com. If you want to contact me directly, just Google Ryan T. Husk and choose your favorite social media site and just message me there. It should be really easy to find me. And you can find this show on Twitter at Weekly Trek and me at Alexander T. Perry. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. And please check out some of the other great shows on the Tricorder Transmissions. And if you like our shows, please also consider becoming a Patreon of Tricorder, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Tricorder Transmissions. And lastly, if you're looking for Star Trek news on the internet, I hope you will turn to trekcore.com. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you to all of my listeners. And until next week, live long and prosper. Prosper.